and say, that was a good run. We saw some good things happen. We want to say, that was a work of God, and God did some great things in that place, through those people, in those people. You see, we live in a culture. It's hard for us. Some of our international students and, and, and people that have moved here can maybe help us with this because in America, we are naturally, necessarily influenced by the culture in which we live. This capitalistic, consumeristic culture, right? And so it's possible to do a lot of good things to spread the word about our church and to do a few things well, have a cool band, you know, have a cool pastor, um, <laughs> things like that. I was talking about John, actually. Marcia told me this week I'm not very cool. In fact, she said I have an afro, which I guess I still do because I haven't had a haircut yet. And so I'm not, I'm not saying I'm cool, but, you know, churches that have cool pastors, you know, you just kind of do a few things really well and you get people to come back. And this is what David Platt says about this kind of danger of perhaps capitulating to the culture and not really seeing a work of God's spirit. Here, here's what he says. The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel to the nations today may be the attempt of the church of God to do the work of God apart from the spirit of God. Not the self-indulgent immorality of our culture, but the self-sufficient mentality of the church. And then he asked a really good follow-up question, the question that I am trying to ask myself and the question that I want to ask our church. Are we dependent on ourselves or are we desperate for God's spirit? Are we dependent on ourselves or are we desperate for God's spirit? In other words, is this our deal? At the end of the day, is this our deal or is this God's deal? Is God doing this? Are we, are we desperate to see him work, him move, him change our life, him bring new life? Because the Gospel of Luke presents Jesus in all his fullness, and he is one who is marked, filled, anointed with the Spirit, as we're going to see in Luke 4 today. And the, and the role of the Spirit is so prominent in the Gospel of Luke. We saw the Spirit in chapter 1 with the coming of, of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus in their birth. Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit. Zechariah prophesying in the Spirit. Simeon filled with the Spirit, speaking of the blessing that Christ is. John the Baptist saying that Jesus would baptize with the Spirit. Jesus being baptized in the Spirit, falling on him like a dove. Luke 4, Jesus being thrust out into the wilderness by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, then filled with the Spirit to fight with the Spirit and the Word against the attacks of Satan. The Spirit is so prominent in the book of Luke. And today, we're going to see much of the same thing. And in light of that, I would just give one simple encouragement to us as a church. In light of this Spirit-driven mission of Jesus, we need to strive to be a church that engages in that same spirit-driven mission of Jesus. So look in chapter four of Luke, starting in verse 14, and we will go through 
the end of the chapter this morning. Here we go. It says this. And Jesus returned in, once again, the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, what you need to know is this. Luke 4.14 marks a new section in the Gospel of Luke. It will take us through chapter 9, verse 50. This is the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And so Luke is introducing us. Remember we said that his baptism was the public kind of launch into ministry. And the temptation of the world was in some ways a preparation for ministry. And now his ministry begins in 4.14. And what we find is that it's a ministry that is, being, is full of God's spirit. And, and it says that he went about teaching in their synagogue. So what we're about to see in verse 16 and following this, this synagogue episode in Nazareth was not an isolated event. Jesus went about teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming what the scripture said, which would have been the Old Testament about the kingdom of God. And so that's where we pick up in verse 16, and it says this, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, let's just stop right there. What do we learn here? Number one, Jesus was from Nazareth. He is Jesus of Nazareth. This is his hometown. Number two, Jesus went to church. Okay? So, I mean, you know, I know this is the synagogue, okay? But, 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 but you know, we always have conversations about how can you see, and I don't want to just kind of, excursus here and kind of dwell on this. But I'm going to say, man, if, if Jesus went to church, it's probably a good idea for us to go to church, right? Not to, be, not to be legalist, you know, not to get our attendance up. But I mean, why did Jesus go to church? I think Jesus went to church because he loved God. He loved God's word. He loved to come together with others and, and pray and seek after God. So that's enough for me. I mean, this is a new argument. Man, I don't have to go to church. Well, Jesus did. So... <laughs> Verse 17 tells us what he was teaching. And this, this uh, begins in verse 17. Look, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, once again, this is a pivotal passage in the Gospel of Luke. Luke positions this episode in Nazareth for a particular reason because in many ways he is trying to help us to see that this is what some have called the programmatic statement for the ministry of Christ throughout the Gospel of Luke. In other words, what he says here sets the agenda for all that's going to follow in the Gospel of Luke. You understand? So this is, I mean, if we want to know the nature of why Jesus came, what was his mission, the spirit-driven mission, what was it all about, we find it right here in Luke 4, 
18 and 19, which Jesus is reading out of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The mic read for us just a little bit ago. So to sum up the ministry and mission of Christ, we can put it into to two statements. Number one, Jesus declared his spirit-driven mission through the ministry of the word. <clears throat> it, was, it was a ministry of the word so that the spirit empowered him to, to live out this mission by proclaiming the word of God. And, and we can understand what the mission was because of how the, 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 these verses are structured. We have four infinitive clauses here, okay? And I know some of us haven't been back to English class in a while, but when you see the, the, the infinitive to proclaim, to proclaim, to set at, to proclaim, then we see that this is kind of defining and demarcating his ministry and mission. And notice that the first two and the last center on this idea of proclamation, that he came to declare something about the kingdom of God. So what was that? Well, the first one says that he came to proclaim good news to the poor. I mean, Jesus came to preach, to announce, as John said earlier, good news. This is the word for the gospel in the New Testament. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. It is a report. It is an announcement. And news is to be received, heard and received. So Jesus announces this, this good news. And how did he preach? Well, just a few uh, Ideas from our, our passage here. Uh, first, in verse 22, look at it. It says, uh, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So, so, so the, what, the content of what Jesus uh, spoke, there were, were gracious words, both in his content and I'm sure in his communication, how he delivered it. it there was grace there, which should not surprise us because John's prologue says that Jesus was full of grace. And he was full of truth, which is what we see in verses 31 and 32. Look there. It says, and then he went to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For his word possessed authority. So Jesus isn't just here to make people feel good about themselves, tell people a little bit about what they would like to hear, but he was there to proclaim God's truth and he presented it in such a way that was authoritative. So remember, he is full of grace and he is full of truth. And we have to think that Jesus also Proclaim the gospel with great purpose and passion. Why is that? Well, skip on down to verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So this was a necessity for Christ. This was a, this was a compulsion. He was moved to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, what's all that about? Well, the kingdom of God refers to God's sovereign rule over all things and in particular, his reign over his people. So when you see kingdom in the New Testament, oftentimes it's referring to the, to the rule and reign of God that we should live under. 
So this is the content of his message. And it's, it's good news of the kingdom. And the, go back to verse 18. It's good news to the poor. Now, with all of these images in these couple of verses, we need to understand that there are both physical dynamics and realities and also spiritual realities. So Luke loves, I mean, Luke is the gospel for all, right? Not a son of Abraham, a son of Adam. So this is the gospel for all people. And Luke loves to highlight how Jesus loved those on the outside, the outcast, the marginalized of society. You may not want to spend time with the poor. You may not want to spend time with the homeless. You may not want to spend time with people that don't look like you, talk like you, smell like you. But if so, you're not a lot like Jesus in that way. And Luke knew this. He saw this, and he constantly highlighted it. He came to proclaim good news to the poor. But it's not just the physical poor. It's the the poor in spirit that he speaks of in Matthew 5.3. It's, it's the, the poor in spirit. It means those who have a bit of humility. They're open to the working of God in their life because they see that they don't have it all together. They have great need before God. To be poor in spirit means that we see our spiritual poverty before God, that we have nothing to offer God in light of his holiness and his character and his perfection. What do we have to bring to the table? And the answer is absolutely nothing. And so if that is the, the understanding of your heart and the, and the disposition of your heart, then you're in pretty good shape to receive this news. And I would just ask you today, what is the condition of your heart? Is there, is there a poverty there? Is there a, a real hunger for God to say, God, I need you? Man, I, I want you, I want more of you, more of your truth. I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. I don't even know what I should do, but I'm just gonna live under your rule and reign and I'm gonna hear from you and, and live in those ways. So Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor and he also came to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Once again, think about both dynamics. Liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. Did Jesus heal the blind physically? And we're gonna see it over and over and over again in the gospels. Of course he did. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But he also came to give sight to the spiritual blind. Those who cannot see with the eyes of their heart. And he came to set free those who are captive. I mean, the imagery is so thick and rich here. We could spend the whole sermon on liberty to the captives. Because, yes, some people are in exile. Some people are in in, in bondage and captivity. And that is not just. We should want to set them free. But God is not just into that kind of justice. He's into spiritual justice, spiritual reconciliation. We who are slaves to our sin, Christ sets us free. We who are in spiritual exile, Christ brings us home. It's not an either or, it's a both and in the kingdom of God. And then lastly here in the proclamation part, you have proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this, this statement rings of the year of Jubilee. I'm gonna let John kind of uh, address this more next week as we look at Sabbath and rest and, and what all of that means. But the year of Jubilee was basically a, a, the 50th year on the Jewish calendar where they experienced rest and restoration. 
And what we can at least say this morning is that Jesus came to give not only physical rest, but spiritual rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me. Here's the invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So listen, I don't care if you need to come to Christ and you're burdened by the weight of your sin and guilt that is just burying you before God and others or if you have been in Christ for years. We constantly need to come to him for our rest. Man, I know we're busy. I know we have a lot on our plate. I know we're stressed out. I know we don't have all the answers. I know that our family's driving us crazy and our coworkers are driving us crazy and we're driving ourselves crazy sometimes, right? And we need to come to Christ and know that his, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. He gives us rest. Now, verse 20, it, it, it escalates. It gets more exciting. It says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's Luke's way of just grabbing our attention, okay, the, the, this moment here. And, and what, is, what does Jesus do? It says that it, he began to say to them, okay, I love this, all right? This is the argument for why we do what we do on Sundays. We read the text and we explain it. So Jesus sat down, which he is, he's more of a teacher than me because I can't sit down very long when I'm teaching. I just want to get up, you know, but that was, that was the custom of the day. It was this way to respect. The teacher sat down, others stood up, and they listened to the teacher. And so he just read Isaiah 61, and now he's about to explain it to them and unpack the, the relevance of that text, not making it relevant, but exposing it's relevant. And Jesus explains it and shows its relevance in just one line. It's unbelievable. Look at what he says. Verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. That truth, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set at liberty the captive, to, to release those who are oppressed. He's saying, look, this is being fulfilled even as you are hearing these words. In other words, Jesus is saying, this truth is fulfilled in me. I am the answer. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. If you want to receive good news, if you want to be changed, if you want to be released, if you want to be able to see, you need to get connected to me. And so the beautiful thing about Jesus, unlike us when we preach, whenever Jesus preached, he just preached about himself. Now that's our job. We don't preach ourselves, is what Paul says, but we preach Christ and him crucified ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. So in Christ, what we have are all the fulfillment of all the promises of God in the Old Testament. Every promise that we have, we're studying Genesis on Sunday mornings, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the, all the prophecies, they're all fulfilled in Christ. All the promises are yes in him. So we aren't those who say, oh, we're New Testament believers. What's that? I mean, we're, we're Christians, Jesus read the Old Testament. He loved the Old Testament. It all spoke of him. So we read both Testaments here. We usually go back and forth in our preaching a lot of times because we want the whole counsel of God. Now, if that is true, 
If, if Jesus' ministry, if his mission, spirit-driven mission, was a ministry of the word, then what does that mean for us? And I think it's pretty simple. We take our cues from him, and we are about his mission by speaking his word to others. It's not a, it's not a big assignment. It's not like, you know, there's just not, a, it's just, this is what we do. We, we, we tell people about Jesus. We give people God's word. And why do we do that? Well, here's a little theology of God's word. Okay, I wish we could have spent more time on it last week, but, but Luke 4, and let me kind of bring Matthew 4 for the same episode. Matthew just gives us a little bit more. He, he says, uh, as, as he was tempted, remember in the wilderness, Satan says, I know you're hungry. You haven't eaten for 40 days. Why don't you command these stones to be turned into bread? And here's what Jesus says. He says, look, man shall not live by bread alone, as this is what's written in Deuteronomy 8, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, 2 Timothy 3 is great parallel passages here. They go hand in hand. I'm going to start in verse 14, and then uh, you'll have the end of 15 and 16 on the screen. In 17, it says this, but as for you, Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, let's just hit a real simple theology of the word here, all right? Number one, the word is from God. God has given us his word in the pages of scripture and it is it's his, okay? It's what Jesus says, Deuteronomy 8, you don't live by just bread, you live by my words that I give to you. That is your, your spiritual nourishment, which leads us to the second point. Not only is the word God's word, it's from God, but the word gives us life, it's our, it's our spiritual nourishment. It's our sustenance. We live by it. it. It's inspired. It's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for our lives to correct us, to reproof us, to, to train us in righteousness so that we will live our lives in such a way that we are reflecting the very image of God. He makes us more like him when we soak up his word. So if you're looking for a life, if you, if you want to be spiritually filled and spiritually alive and animated, I mean, if you're struggling spiritually, I would just ask you, what's your, what's your time in the Word look like? Like, are you really loving God's Word? Are you really soaking it up? Because what's our response in light of this? If, if, if the Word is from God and the Word gives life, then here's just two encouragements. Number one, soak it up. Soak it up. Know it. Read it. I mean, every week we give out these little, you know, worship guys, and at the bottom there's a meta-memo verse. And so what does that mean? You are going to find that word in the dictionary, all right? Meta-memo, what is that? I mean, it's a word my friend came up with, one of our friends a while back. And it stands for meditate, memorize, okay? So we, we want to think on God's word. We want to meditate on it to the point where maybe we can even memorize and hide it into our hearts. We, we go over these in our community groups every week. And a lot of times, you know, 
we're struggling just to, you know, kind of, oh, what was our verse this week? And, you know, so we're all working together to try to soak God's word up. And let me just say this, in light of the, the Dalai Lama, his holy, it's hard for me to say that, um, but the Dalai Lama came to Medford this week, all right? It was, it was, a, it was a once-in-a-lifetime occasion. I was, I was uh, honored to be able to, to, to go and just to, to be a part of this kind of event, and he, he kind of did a spill on, you know, what his purposes are to promote human values and, and kind of religious tolerance and inclusivism. And then, you know, obviously his, his uh, being a spokesperson for the people of Tibet as they are in exile and captivity, uh, being driven out of their own country. And, and so we, we heard from him, but, but he, he talked about at one point emptying their mind. And this is, this is Eastern meditation, right? This is what meditation and the, the Eastern kind of philosophy and religion is all about. They want to empty their mind. But in Christianity, we don't want to empty our mind. We want to fill our mind with God's truth because God's truth gives us life. We aren't trying to find ourselves. We're trying to find God and let God direct everything about ourselves. So we soak up God's word and then we share God's word, okay? So, so it's, it's not enough just to soak it up. It's not just enough to soak it up to, to want to live it out, but we soak it up so that we can share it. We can spread God's word. Now, how are we going to go about this? Well, here's just one suggestion, okay? And this, this is, there's nothing novel about this, but and in light of kind of, did, did anyone see the, the Pew Forum report that came out just in the past couple of weeks? Non-belief was on the rise, basically, or at least no religious affiliation. Maybe not, I mean, atheism is on the rise just a little bit, but, but more just, hey, I don't connect to this church or that church. I'm just kind of a spiritual person, very prevalent view today. Um, and then it also, now for the first time, uh, Protestants are not the majority, and you say, well, is that like, is this something to be concerned about? Not really. The statistics are finally just reflecting what has been the reality for many, many years, right? So, so Al Mohler wrote an article and he, he talks about uh, convictional faith versus fuzzy fidelity. In other words, people that, are, that really believe are, are going to, you know, come forth with it. And those that really don't have much belief are finally disconnecting from just their affiliation with the church, so on the one hand, we don't need to be worried about it. On the other hand, it points out the fact that there are thousands and thousands and millions of people all around us who do not see the validity and the power of the good news about Jesus Christ. So what do we do with that? Well, what we hopefully do with that is we pray and ask God to fill us with, with some courage and some boldness and some wisdom, and we Take the, the word to our friends and family and coworkers and say, you know what? Have you ever studied the, the life and teachings of Jesus? It's not, that's not a very intimidating question, is it? It's just a question. Have you, have you ever read the Bible? And would you be interested in doing that? Listen to what Ed Stetzer found in, in some of his re research with Lifeway Research. He says this, we asked a thousand uh, 20-somethings unchurched people and 500 older unchurched, 30 or above. Wow, that's me these days. Um, and they asked him this question, all right? I would be willing to study the Bible. Would you be willing to study the Bible if a friend asked me to? Now, 20-somethings, 61%. 
30 and older, 42%. And what they're saying is, look, this, is, this, this tells us something here. While more people are not affiliating with the church because they have some real negative impressions and experiences even, let's be honest, some negative experiences with the church, they are still open to spirituality and even the things of God, even, even the Bible. So what do we do with that? Here's the conclusion we have to draw. Perhaps many of our friends and family and coworkers are not hearing the Bible because they're unwilling to hear, but because we are unwilling to share. God help us and God change us. Listen, not everyone's going to be receptive, right? Not all of your friends. And if you get rejected, if you get, you know, ridiculed a little bit, you're in good company because you're in the company of Jesus. Look at verse 22 and following. It says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, they started to grumble. They started to nudge each other a little bit with their elbows. Is this not Joseph's son? Which was a yes and no answer, right? It's not Joseph. He's the son of God. He's not Joseph's son. And he said to them, okay, Dallas, will you quote this uh, proverb to me? Physician, heal yourself. In other words, we want to see signs. We want to see miracles. If you're really the son of God, if you're really the, the anointed Messiah, the show us, prove us by signs. It's what the Jews were always after, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And, 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 he, and, and what you, uh, we heard you did in Capernaum, do now here in your hometown as well. Verse 24, and he said truly, 70 times in the, in the gospels, truly. In other words, listen up to what I'm about to say. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, what do we learn here? Jesus was not received by all. In fact, his word was often rejected. What he's saying is, you want to see a sign, but what you need is my word. You want to see some fancy kind of you perceive them as, you know, tricks and just what the, the benefits that you can receive from me, heal this person and that. But, but what you don't want is to submit to the reign of God in the kingdom and receive my word. And so he tells them as a way to prophetically warn them, hey, this has happened before. Go back and reread your Bible. Don't you know that in 1 Kings 17, 
Elijah was sent not to the people of Israel, but to this widow in Zarephath, and she was fed. She was cared for, and the, the heat rises in their hearts. And then he goes to Naaman, the Syrian, right? And he says, you know what? There were many lepers in Israel, but this Syrian, he was the one that, that Elisha healed, and their heat rises a little bit more. And what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying what we've been seeing all throughout Luke is that the gospel is for all people. And if you won't receive my word, I'll take it to someone else. So there was opposition for Christ. So much so. I mean, do you ever read the Bible too fast? You just read it before, you read it again. You just... It says that they were filled with wrath. They were so enraged that they took, physically took Jesus out, physically put him on the edge of a cliff and were about ready to shove him over. They did not want to just ridicule him a little bit. They wanted him dead. So when we talk about spiritual warfare, when it says in Luke 4.13 that the devil waited until an, an opportune time to attack Jesus again, I mean, it's, we're gonna see spiritual warfare all throughout the gospel of Luke, and here is surely another occasion if Satan can take him out, that would certainly disrupt his mission. So, so the ministry of, of Jesus, the mission of Jesus was declared through a ministry of the word, now number two, and we'll speed up just a bit. The spirit-driven mission of Jesus was displayed through a ministry of deeds. So Jesus displayed his spirit-driven mission through the ministry of deeds. And we see this back in verse 18, that third clause where it says that he, he was sent to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then we're gonna get three examples of that at the end of the chapter. Now let's just reason with one another for a minute. It's not word only. It's word and deed. It's not, it's not just deed, it's, it's word and deed. Some of us love the truth. We love the word. We want to admit mission is all about the word. So we, 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 we trumpet that, but we don't want to do anything about like helping people's physical needs. Other people are, are really big on good deeds, good works. Let's, let's exercise justice. God is a God of justice, and we want to be about that while leaving behind the ministry of the word. But we don't find that in the ministry of Christ. In fact, Lana is a good example of what she shared. They're going to do medical missions. Now, is there virtue and goodness in those deeds of caring for physical ailments, sickness? Absolutely. Without reservation, let's go meet people's physical needs and care for them in the name of God, doing it in Christ. There is goodness just in that and that alone. But healing their physical needs is not going to tell them how their spiritual needs can be altered and changed. So we have to do both, right? It's not enough just to, to, to be about the word, but have to be about word and deed. Listen, Tim Keller at a conference we, many of us attended this weekend. He says, Christianity is not just a way of life. Christianity is a message that leads to a way of life. So there's salvation found in the word, and that word leads us to do good deeds. So when Jesus here is saying, God sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed, he's, he's quoting Isaiah 58. 
And Isaiah 58 is actually too good not to read. So let me just read verses six through eight. This is what God is after. Not just your religious acts is the context here, but this is what he's after. Verse six, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, there it is, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, then if you care for the poor, if you feed the hungry, if you clothe the naked, if you visit the sick and visit those who are in prison, Matthew 25, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. So it's word and deed. Our deed, they, they speak to what should be true about this word that we have received. Now we're living under the rule and reign of Christ. And this is what I love about Jesus and what I love about a holistic picture of the gospel and the kingdom and these good deeds that he does in the gospels. Listen to what, how this works, okay? This is kind of deep here. But, but when Jesus, look, we're running out of time, but, but here, here's the deal, okay? I want to, I'll save that for just a second. He, healing number one, all right? 31 through 37. He heals a, a man with an unclean demon, and, and what, what happens here, here's the first of, the, of 21 miracles in the Gospel of Luke. Well, let's just read real quick. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for they were possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down on the midst, in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, healing number two, Peter's mom. Mother-in-law, okay? Peter was married, by the way. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, we have a little bit of a different view on that. Um, so, so Peter's wife's mom here is, we go in verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill and with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. That's healing number two. And Luke wants us to see that this was powerful, spontaneous, immediate healing by Christ. This is the kind of power that his authoritative word has to bring healing to people. Now, the third set, verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not let, allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. There is a spiritual battle going on and Jesus uh, is, is doing some, some, some damage here, if you will, all right? And in a good kind of way. 
Because John says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All right? So unclean demons get lost. If your fever is high and you're sick and debilitated, I can heal you. If you're blind, I can restore your sight. If you're lame, I can cause you to walk. And what Jesus is doing is he is, as we sang this morning, no more let sins, not just sins though, and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This curse has not just affected our soul. This curse has affected our life physically. We're sick. We have cancer. And Jesus has the power to heal anyone at any time. But here's the deal. What is, what is all this about? Not just the words of the kingdom, but the acts, the deeds of the kingdom. Every time Jesus healed someone and he released those who were oppressed and he fed the hungry, like 5,000 of them, and you know, he healed the blind, what Jesus was doing was he was reversing the effects of sin in the fall and he was restoring God's good ordered creation as it was in the beginning. And by the way, as it was in the beginning, so it will be again because it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So now you understand why we as a church don't just want to talk about the gospel and preach the gospel, but we want to, to, to live the gospel with our life. We talk about pray, display, declare. Pray, display, declare. We don't just want to declare the gospel, we want to display the gospel. And whenever we feed hungry in our city, we declare the gospel. But even more than that, we are giving a picture of what the coming kingdom of God will look like where there will never be someone who is hungry. There will not be cancer in the kingdom of God. By the way, there will not be death. This is what moves us. This is what moves us to act and to serve and to love people. And this is what Jesus did. So, Will we be a church that not just proclaims the gospel, but lives the gospel, displays the gospel? Will we be a church that's not sufficient in and of ourselves, but we're dependent on God's spirit? Because this is why Jesus came, what he did, what he's modeled for us, and what he now empowers us to do as his people. Let's pray. God, we're so tempted to hear and not be moved. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would move us, that you would move us to be like Christ, that you would move us to, to adopt his mission as our own, that we would speak your words, these words of life, but we would live these words of life and that we would show people what your kingdom looks like already here and consummated, but not yet fulfilled, not everything restored just yet. So Lord, help us to put forth a picture of that. 
And we pray that even in our deeds, even as we display the gospel, that people would see the coming kingdom of God and they would want to live under your reign. God, help us to live under your reign, even now as we continue in worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.